And so I started researching and I came across these maternity homes. Between 1945 and 1975, 1 1.5 million babies were born in these homes. These women, these young girls, unmarried and pregnant, went into these homes to have their babies. Oftentimes they were forced and coerced to give up their children. This was before IVF. Uh, this was before adoption was something that was celebrated. And so they were shamed and coerced into giving up these children. But when I was looking closer into these maternity homes, I couldn't find a single black woman's story within these homes. All right, today we have Sadiqwa Johnson. Sadiqwa is an award-winning author of four novels. Your new book, House of Eve, is coming out on February 7, 2023. Please give the audience the backstory of who you are, where you're from, and what was your childhood like? Well, Todd, first, let me say thank you so much for having me. Um, it is such an honor and a privilege to be here. And as you mentioned, I'm Sadiqwa Johnson. I'm the author of, well, now, five novels because The House of Eve will be out on February 7th, as you mentioned. Um, I was the girl who went to the library every Sunday, um, or every Monday, and I checked out seven books and I read a book a day. And I read so much that I would put the books behind my textbooks when I was in seventh and eighth grade. Um, so I, I don't know seventh or eighth grade math because I read novels through, through those classes. And so that was sort of the beginning. That was my introduction to literature. My first time writing, um, I grew up in Philadelphia and um, it was around the time when uh, the move situation happened with the bombing in, on, on Osage Avenue in Philadelphia. And my first paper that I wrote was called The Roof is on Fire. And I won uh, an award for that. And so my, my parents were like, well, you might be onto something. But I was way more interested in the arts and theater. And so I went to college as a theater major. I, I wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to be on screen. And while I was in college, um, I took playwriting classes and screenplay writing classes. And because I read so much, it was very natural for me to sit down and sort of pen poetry and focus on a novel. Well, my first job out of, high, out of college was Scholastic Books. And I went there as a publicist and I worked on some really uh, wonderful pieces of literature, such as um, I think you guys might recognize the Harry Potter books. I was the publicist for J.K. Rowling's. I worked on the first three books. Um, and so that was sort of my, my day job. And so I was working with all of these wonderful authors and I started to think, well, I could do that. And I just sat down and start working on my first novel. My first novel never saw the light of day. Um, I don't even know where it is. It's probably on one of those old like tracks that we used to plug into the computers back in the day, one of those discs, right? Uh, but I got my second job in publishing at G.P. Putnam's Sons, where I was working with big heavy hitter New York Times bestselling authors, Bishop T.D. Jakes, Rebecca Walker, Amy Tan, Catherine Coulter. And it was there that I really started working on my first novel. And because I had access to all of these brilliant authors, I would just pick their brains, like in the back of town cars on our way to the Today Show. And I would just ask them, like, how did you get started? You know, how did you get an agent? What's your writing schedule like? What advice would you give to budding authors? And so I sort of used what I had to figure out how to write. 
I wrote every day at work because I didn't have a computer at home or my computer was really janky. So I would write on the train. I lived in New Jersey and I worked in New York City. So I would write on the train every day. And then every day at four o'clock, I would close my office and pretend like I was working on something important, which it was because it was for me. And so I would type all of my story in from four until I left work. And it was back in those times when in the office you had these big shared printers. So I would have to rush to the printer and grab my five or six pages of my novel off before anybody knew what I was doing. And so that was sort of the beginning of, of my writing career. You know, Sadiqa, you really just answered every one of my questions that I have for you today in one condensed answer. But we're going to keep on going up. <laughs> that, that was a great introduction. I've probably done about 50 to 100 interviews, and I can always tell how professional someone is by how concise they are, but at the same time, same time expounding. So this is, this is going to be fun. Now, as a child, school always came easy to me, but I didn't think I liked to read books. But my father always, he's a newspaper guy, and he would always just hand me the newspaper and I would just read articles. And now that I'm, now that I'm much older, he was just getting me to read and just read it and stay up on current events. And then he started, he bought me a Magic Johnson book and then he bought me a Michael Jordan book and I was big time into basketball. So those captured me. Then in 11th grade, because, you know, up until high school, you really don't read a lot of nonfiction. But then in 11th grade, I read Gifted Hands by Ben Carson. And I probably read that. It was probably 30 pages and I probably read it in 30 days. Then the light bulb kind of went on and it said, I'm a nonfiction guy. I'm a biography guy. I'm an autobiography guy. But some of the smartest people I know are avid fiction readers. What does fiction evoke out of readers and why do so many intellectuals gravitate towards fiction? Hmm. I would say that light bulb moment that you just described for you also helped happen for me in high school. And it was when I read uh, Maya Angelou's um, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings and the rest of her biographies after those books. And I remember being in high school and um, hiding in a classroom during lunch so that I could read the books because my friends wanted me to jump double dutch. But I was I was having that same experience uh, that you had. The thing I love about fiction is that it can take you anywhere. And I think that that is what most people enjoy about it. Like I can, I mean, when I was writing my last novel, The Yellow, uh, Yellow Wife, which was set in 1850s is about an enslaved woman here in Richmond, you know, as I was writing the story, I was liter literally transported into 1850. I was, you know, smelling the smells and walking the street and, and, and I could feel the heaviness of the clothing on me and taste the herbs that they cook with. And so I think the beauty of fiction is that it transports you to another time, place, space, and it gives you an experience that you would not normally have. Makes sense. Now, most writers are avid readers and love reading. I'm guessing you're an avid reader, but I don't have to guess anymore because you told me you used to read a book a day. <laughs> you know, I thought reading a book in three days was something. When did you fall in love with reading and how did that evolve into a love of writing? And how did you discover that you are a good writer? Hmm. 
writing wouldn't leave me alone. I, I don't I don't know the discovery of thinking that I was good or not good. It was more so that even when I said I don't want to do this anymore, the characters just sort of hung around and I was I felt bad about not showing up. I felt I felt, you know, my first novel took me over 10 years to finish. And it was because I took so many breaks in writing it because I, I almost didn't want to write. Like it was too hard. So so I don't I don't know that I ever thought that I was good. I think that keeps me humble. Um, because while I am proud of the novels that I put out, every single time I sit down to write a new novel, I'm always striving to do something different, um, to to take it up a notch, you know. Um, so being good, I, I think, mm, yeah, I think just just always striving to be better is probably what what I do. Well, we're, well we're, we're on our fifth novel here. Where does this humility come from? I guess it's the way I was raised. My dad, you know, was also very influential in, in my life, as, as you mentioned. And he was the one who was always giving me those first novels. Um, I remember when we were, uh, I lived in Philadelphia, we would go to a black bookstore called Hakeem's Bookstore in, in West Philadelphia. And that's where I discovered Toni Morrison and uh, Claude McKay and um, Mal the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, you know, my dad always taught me, you know, to, to be humble, keep a low profile, always be sort of working to be your better self. And so I think it sort of comes natural, but I also think it, it's what makes good writers better. Because if you already think you have it, then what is there to go after, right? So if you're always sort of thinking like, this is good, but I think my gift can be, uh, fine-tuned. I think I could be better. I think if I did it this way next time, or if I challenged myself to do this this time, then I could maybe hit some other things. And so, I don't know. It just is sort of who I am. Now, you just, you just said something and something popped into my head. And I've noticed it's something about people from West Philadelphia where it's a lot of excellence coming out of West Philadelphia. What is it about West Philadelphia? Well, I grew up in Logan. Um, so I wouldn't really, I wouldn't be able to speak specifically on West Philadelphia, but just people in general coming out of Philadelphia, I would say there is um, a grit and there is a lot of hunger. Um, there's also a lot of poverty in Philadelphia for, for African-Americans. And so there's always this sense of trying to get out. And what do I have to do to get out? I don't want to stay in this space. You know, what, what do I need to do? And so I think that there's always this hunger of elevation that comes out of the city of Philadelphia, particularly for African-Americans. That makes sense. Now, I'm a father and I instill a lot of my passions into my children. And you're a wife and a mother of three. Do you instill a love of reading and writing in your children? And how did you teach your children how to read and write at a young age? Are there any tactics that you can share to help parents that are on the reading and writing journey with their kids? Well, I would say it was much easier when they were little. My kids now are 19, 17 and 14. And so they, did, they don't listen. Um, but when they were when they were four, seven and nine, you know, it was a lot easier sort of to, to foster that. And, 
you know, we read every single night before bed when they were younger. Um, I remember even my son, when he was in fifth grade, I would sit and I would say, you read a page, I read a page, you read a page, I read a page. So we were always reading. Um, I introduced him to poetry at a very early age. Now, do they appreciate all this stuff? Not right in this moment, but I would like to say, you know, in the next five years, it'll all come full circle that they had the foundation of being readers and writers. But it's just a matter of making time to do it. You know, it, I was pretty religious about before you go to bed, we're going to read a story. And that was basically the beginning of it. Um, summertime, I would say you have to read three books, you know, three chapter books for the summer. And, you know, reward systems work too. I know one year my son was not having it. And so I was like, okay, I'll pay you $5 a book. And then he was on board. So do what you got to do to get these kids to be readers. Now, I'm an avid studier of greatness, mostly business and athletes. And most of them have a lot of the same idiosyncrasies that make them great, like fearlessness and competitiveness and attention to detail. And as you mentioned earlier, you've worked with some of the greats, the J.K. Rowlings and the Bishop T.D. Jakes and more. Are there any commonalities that you can that you can share that you saw within them that make them great? I would say it's discipline, you know, talent without discipline, hmm, not so much. But if you are talented and you have the discipline to show up, um, do what you say you're going to do, be impeccable with your word. Uh, I think that makes the difference. You know, for me, I I have been home with my kids since I since I had my my son. And so I've always had to play that balance of I always felt like I was a mom first and then I was a part-time writer second. And so whatever they needed always came first, but I also had to uh, carve out time to write every day. When uh, they were really small, my writing time was like from 4 to 6 p.m. because I would bring them home from nursery school or wherever they were, get them situated. And then I had like a little teenager who would come over and play with them in the living room from four to six. Well, I knew that that was going to be my writing time. Then I would come up and cook them dinner. And so it's the discipline of figuring out a section of your day that's going to work and honor it every single day that you say you're going to do it. For me, it was always Monday through Friday. My writing time and my writing, uh, my writing times have changed, but that was sort of the beginning for me when they were really little, you know, is making sure that I showed up when I said I was going to show up. And I, I saw that in all of the great authors that I work with, that they, they're disciplined. Sadiqa, you're good because you're literally answering questions before I ask them, but I'm going to still ask it because you may expound some more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You wear a lot of hats and being a wife, mother, teacher, and I'm sure many, many more. When do you write? Do you download everything at one time? Do you have a set writing schedule? Do you and the family mm. go on vacation and then you write on the beach? Do you write when you're motivated and inspired? Walk me through your writing style and process. I will say you cannot only write when you're motivated um, and inspired because last week I had this situation where I was like, I just don't know what to say. I, I don't know. And I had to keep showing up, right? Even though I wasn't motivated or inspired, I still have to show up. But now um, I'm in the process of getting ready for my uh, like six week book tour for the House of Eve, uh, which comes out February 7th. And so a lot of my day now is sort of getting myself prepared, things that I need to do to prepare for the tour. 
But today, my goal was only to write for one hour. <laughs> I said, if I could just, just one hour, because as I was in the shower, I could see the character. I started to see the scene and I thought, okay, I know I have a busy day, but if I could just sit down for one hour today, then that's what I can give. Um, so generally speaking, uh, when I'm starting off on a book, I usually try and write anywhere between two to four hours a day, just to sort of get the blood going. When I get to a point where I feel like, okay, I have that first draft down and it's time to take it a little bit deeper, I will go away to write so that I'm not distracted by my family, by people asking me, babe, what's for dinner? You know, just being able to focus on the characters. Uh, so I'll go away for anywhere between four to 10 days at a time so that I could just have full focus on the novel. And that's something that I've, brought into the house of Eve it was my first time really doing that and I saw that my writing went a lot faster because I stayed closer to the characters I stayed in the story I wasn't as distracted and that made this that made the writing of it go a lot faster than some of my previous books so I will definitely be doing that from from now on is, is blocking off times on the calendar where I'm I'm out <laughs> that makes sense you talked about preparing for your six-week book tour and you can kind of prepare yourself. How do you prepare the people around you? How do you mm. prepare that child that's used to you being there every night when they come home from school and talking about school? How do you prepare your husband where he's going to have to think about it a couple hours before about what dinner's going to be now? That's, that's, <laughs> that's the tricky thing right there, Todd. I'm sure you are speaking from experience. Yes. You know, I can go in the kitchen and not have grocery shopped and dinner is still on the table, you know, so it's a lot different when my husband does that. But, you know, one of the things that my husband and I do at the beginning of every year is we fast for 21 days. And that is sort of what uh, sets the tone for our year. Uh, so we fast for 21 days, all plant based, just water. And that sort of brings us into like what we're trying to manifest and how do we want this year to sort of um, evolve for us. So that was something that we did. We do it together. We've done it together. We only have a few more days. I can't wait till Friday because I miss drinking coffee so much. What is a writer who cannot drink coffee? I mean, it just, it doesn't make sense. Um, so I'll be back to my coffee first thing Saturday morning. Um, but what I've been doing to prepare the family is sort of giving them responsibilities now. Whereas before I was always the one cooking dinner, I have one daughter and she's the youngest who actually knows how to cook. And so I've been saying, okay, once or twice a week, you go ahead and make something, you know, um, putting my schedule on my husband's calendar is another thing. Like these are the doctor's appointments that's coming up. I'm going to share it to your calendar so that I don't have to remind you while I'm gone. So just little things like that. And I'm sure they're going to figure it out. Um, they're all very resilient. So they'll figure it out. Um, but I, I'll do what I can from where I am. Now, just last week, I was in the gym speaking to my fraternity brother, and he mentioned that he's an author. And I mentioned our upcoming conversation and told him if I can help him, I'll help. Now, I've talked to a good amount of self-published authors and aspiring authors over the years. What advice would you or do you give to aspiring authors that want to be published by a major publishing house like a Simon & Schuster? Well, I can tell you that I started off actually as a self-published author. 
Uh, it started not because it was what I wanted to do, because as I mentioned, I had relationships with editors and agents. But my very first novel, Love in a Carry-On Bag, when my agent took it to market, she wasn't able to sell it. She took it to 10 different editors and they all one by one told me no. And so me becoming a self-published author sort of came out of devastation and desperation. I didn't have any other place to turn and I have been working on this book for over 10 years. And so my husband said to me, you've been working in the publishing industry for a few years. Why don't we take what you've learned and sort of do this thing ourselves? And so the first thing I would say is that you want to hire an editor, whether you're gonna self-publish or whether you're gonna go after the big publishing houses because the way the industry is moving so quickly now, editors and agents don't have the time to foster everything into you the way they probably did 20 years ago. So you wanna make sure that your project is as close to completion as possible. So I would say hire an editor just off the bat to make sure that what you're submitting is as strong as possible. As a self-published author, I had to uh, be my own salesperson. I would call up bookstores and pretend that I was someone else selling my book to them and asking if I could send copies and you know that they could pay me later. I was just trying to get my book in their hands. I literally went up and down the East Coast to every book festival that I could find, setting up tables and retractables and hand selling my books to people. I went to hair shows. I went anywhere that I thought that I could meet my reader. Um, and that was for a whole year before I got a publishing deal. But at the same time, I was still working on that next novel. And so it was my second novel, my second and third novel that I was able to sell to a publisher. So I would say you want to have a little bit of hustle because this is not for the faint at heart. This this does not come easy. You look at the New York Times bestsellers list and you think, oh my gosh, these people got it made. But it's, there's a grind to it that you have to um, be ready for because it doesn't just fall into your lap. Even, even though it looks like it on social media, it does not. It's an everyday hustle. Um, the part that I don't love is the social media part because you have to like stay on top of it. You have to plan out your post and that's sort of what's taking up my time now as I'm two weeks out from the publication of The House of Eve is that I need to be active on social media. I have to remind people that I'm coming, you know, that I'm here, that the book is here. Did you pre-order the book? Here's my tour. And so just staying on top of that and, and going in and commenting um, to people who've commented to me sort of kind of... Uh, working your audience and making sure that they feel connected to you. Those are some things that you need to do. You want to stay visible. You need a website. You need a really good website because your website is your calling card. And I am constantly um, making changes and updates to my website because it's a living document. It's a fluid thing. Uh, you want to make sure that what you're saying is on brand with who you are. So when I'm on social media, I talk about the book. I do a little motivation. I'm a, a writing teacher as well. And maybe I may talk a little bit about my kids, but I'm not talking about politics um, because that's not my lane. Now there are authors who talk about politics. That's their lane. That's not my lane. Some days I know about politics, some days not so much. So let me do what I know, right? And so figure out what your three or four lanes are as you're trying to make yourself visible. And write, like you have to sit down and write. You have to be disciplined about it. Um, I always tell my students the first lesson is keep your butt in the chair because there's so many things to distract you. Put your phone down. I work upstairs, so I leave my phone downstairs when I'm writing. 
Um, so it, it's just a be show up and do what you say you're going to do for the actual book, because the craft of writing the novel is one of the most important things in the journey to publication. I was going to say your social media looks pretty good. I took a peek. And well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I am behind the scenes sort of sweating, hoping it's coming out. Okay. Begging my kids to help me, you know, like, this is how do you do a reel? Can you make this on TikTok for me? You know, so having teenagers definitely helps. Definitely. Definitely keeps you, uh, keeps you in the mix. And your website is really good. My husband and does my website. So you have a good husband. <laughs> <laughs> he does a good job and then the picture the like headline picture is really good when you go to your bio and i saw that you that was a, a real photographer do you think a real photographer matters oh absolutely i do for your headshots for anything that's part of your calling car not for your social media you know pictures that i put on social media are basically my iphone um, but for your actual website, you want to use a photographer. You want your you want your package to look as professional as possible. So you want to have the top tier people around you at all times. Makes sense. Do you th is there a, still a stigma surrounding self self publishing, and is it becoming more respected, or is there still a pretty heavy stigma there? I think it depends on what it is you're looking for when you self-publish. You know, some people self-publish as a means to get to the next level, which was my job, which is what I did. I knew that I was not going to stay a self-published author because there was too much self involved. I couldn't, I couldn't handle all of those things and still be the creative person. So I knew that my self-publishing really was to lay the groundwork down so that I can get a publishing deal. But there are some authors who self-publish and they are completely and utterly happy. They have a good following. They could you know, keep the lights on and the water running and they're happy. So it really depends on what it is that you are setting out to do. And you need to be very clear about that. What is the mission of it? What is the end goal? What is your plan in you know, two to three books? Where do you see yourself? So being very specific about that going in will help the, the writer figure out what their path is. Now, going to, back to something that you said and we just talked about, I took a peek at your social media and uh, you talked about who your reader is. And I saw that your readers are pretty diverse. Who, who would you say your reader is? Yeah, I am very fortunate um, that I have a very diverse readership. And that has always sort of been my mission when I started off was that I wanted to write books about um, African-American women and things that they go through. But I wanted it to be something that everybody across genres, across ages, across color lines can access and enjoy. And so I would say my demographic is 25 to 65, uh, primarily women. I do have men who read my book and they enjoy it. And, you know, it, my books are not off limits to men, but I think men often don't pick up books with women on the cover. So really, but if they do pick it up and they're not thinking about the cover, it's, a, it's definitely a story that they can enjoy. And I have all ethnic groups reading my book. And I think that we need everybody to create a bestseller. We can't just be in a particular lane. And so right now my readership is very diverse and very vast and I'm super grateful for that. 
Yeah, I was uh, I was surprised to see so many white men at the different book signings that you that you had. And, you know, I was uh, I like that. I like that yeah, because yeah. I think that we need to share more perspectives. Mm-hmm. Now, when Oprah magazine named your book Yellow Wife as one of their most anticipated winter historical fiction books, what was your reaction and how did it affect the trajectory of your book? It's so funny because I feel like I was like the last to know. I was sitting at my desk writing and one of my writing friends sent me a text with the article and I thought, oh my gosh, like every, so everybody knew except for me. Um, But it was definitely, it was a, it was a, it was a, you have arrived moment that, that was a long time coming because I'm a big believer of vision boards. And so every year at the beginning of the year, I work on my vision board of what I'm trying to bring into my life. And when I first started vision boards, I always used pictures. Now I just do words. I've, I've upgraded a little bit. I don't need the pictures. I just need to know where I'm going. But when I first started, I always cut out pictures from the magazines and Oprah Winfrey was always on my board. And so every year I would take pictures off and put pictures back on, but she was always there. And so when the magazine selected Yellow Wife, it was like, wow, okay, all right. So we're getting somewhere now. Now, I also noticed in in snooping around your website a little bit that you're a speaker. So for the people that want to become speakers, because I'm asking you all these questions because I just want to bring as much value to our audience as possible. So for the people that want to become speakers, talk to me about how you would go about it if you knew what you know now. Mm -hmm. And how has being an author helped you with your leverage as a speaker in terms of drumming up demand for you as a speaker? Well, I wasn't really a speaker until I was an author. So the author came first and the speaker came second. Uh, but it's always something that I like to do. I like to I like to talk to people. I have a theater background. And so being on stage and having a microphone in front of me is, is very natural. Um, I would say if, if being a speaker is something that you want to do, you got to, again, plan for it because it's hard for organizations to find you. Uh, For me, it came through my books. And so it sort of started with people just sending me emails through my website of, oh, we're having this anniversary of a book club, would you come and be our keynote speaker? And so it's sort of, uh, it's sort of snowball that when Yellow Wife came out, and I was with Simon and Schuster, I was able then to get a speaking bureau behind me, which I had not had before. And so now, the game is really up. The ante is really up because they handle everything. They take a percentage, but I'm being paid way more than when I was negotiating for myself. And I'll just give you a little tip that when I was uh, booking my own self as a speaker, I had to have a little bit of space in between me and the audience that was, was reaching out to me. And so I created a separate email address. And this is something I highly recommend if you can't afford to have an agent to start off, create another email address. I use um, one of my children's names as the person who's responding. And so, yeah, I am responding and negotiating for myself, but it sort of gives a little bit of space where if they don't think they're talking to you, they're not trying to put extra demands on you. Like, oh, she's nice. She'll do this extra thing that wasn't in the contract, so to speak. So even if you can't have someone negotiate for you, create some space by having a separate email address with a, uh, 
a virtual assistant's name, we'll call it. We've done a lot of the same tactics. <laughs> <laughs> now, talk to me about uh, House of Eve. And I'm almost jealous of the people that have had the chance to read it already because everyone is just raving about it. And then the blurb that's on your website made me want to read it because, you know, especially Howard University. And then I can understand how it's different people coming to HBCUs. And sometimes you have different people with different objectives. And just just from the blurb, it makes me want to read it. And it's probably going to be my first fiction book that I'm going to read just because we had this conversation. So talk yeah. to me about it. And um Talk to me about why you chose Howard as such a prominent place in the book. Well, The House of Eve uh, is my fifth novel. It's my second historical. And it was inspired by my grandmother. Um, I was fooling around trying to figure out what my next story was going to be. And I had a character. Her name was Ruby. And I knew that she lived in North Philadelphia. I knew that she uh, was in danger but I didn't know what else. Um, so I started to think about my grandmother and things that she told me. And she said that she was always the black sheep of her family. She was 14 when she got pregnant with my mother out of wedlock in the early 1950s, which was taboo and full of shame. Uh, people didn't do that. It's not the way it is now, right? And so uh, she had my mother at 15 and because there was so much family shame around it, they hid the pregnancy from everyone, including my mother. So my mother tells me that she didn't know my grandmother was her mother until she was in the third grade, because at that point she had lived with her grandmother and it had been this great secret. And I could always see this sort of uh, tension between them. You know, they had this tumultuous relationship. I clearly knew that they loved each other, but there was all of this other tension, friction between them. And then I started wondering, like, well, what would life have been like for my grandmother if things had been different? If she wasn't, you know, Black woman, poor, North Philadelphia, what would life have been like? And so I started researching and I came across these maternity homes. Between 1945 and 1975, 1 1.5 million babies were born in these homes. These women, these young girls, unmarried, and pregnant went into these homes to have their babies. Oftentimes they were forced and coerced to give up their children. This was before IVF. Uh, this was before adoption was something that was celebrated. And so they were shamed and coerced into giving up these children. But when I was looking closer into these maternity homes, I couldn't find a single black woman's story within these homes. And I thought, well, what options and opportunities does my, what my grandmother would have, you know? And then I thought, well, there has to be another group, right? So I read the book, Our Kind of People by Lawrence Otis Graham, which you're a nonfiction reader. So I'm, I'm sure you would really enjoy that one. Um, and he talks a lot about the upper echelon, the upper class Black um, community in, in the right after reconstruction up through the 80s. And he talked about DC and New York and Chicago. And so I was really specifically interested in the DC portion of the book. And I learned that most of them went to Howard. 
Uh, most of these affluent Black people were doctors and lawyers and judges and activists. And, you know, they were a tight-knit community. They lived in the Gold Coast. They did things together. And it was hard to break into this community if you couldn't trace your wealth back a few generations, if you weren't very light-skinned, if you didn't play that part. Um, so that is what brought me to Howard University. I was watching uh, Toni Morrison's documentary, The Pieces I Am, and she said, I didn't know that Black people separated themselves by color until I stepped foot on Howard University in the 1950s. And so I thought, wow, what if I had a character who was from the Midwest, she was from Ohio, Toni Morrison, and she comes to Howard University and this is all a big shock to her system. And so that was where the character Eleanor came in. And I started to weave the story between Ruby and Eleanor using Philadelphia as a backdrop and Washington DC, Black Broadway and Howard University as I told this story. That makes a lot of sense. And my, I've, got hip to HBCUs because my sister, well, we're from Cleveland, Ohio, and my sister went to Hampton. I went to, and then when I used to visit her at Hampton, I'm like, oh, she, it was perfect for her, but it was a little bougie for me. And <laughs> so I went, I went to Florida A&M and um, just a, just a, it was just a great experience. So I'm, I'm glad I'm excited about reading the book. I, I wanted you to keep talking because I'm like, I want to know the whole book. I'm I'm one of those guys when I go to the movie, I want to know everything before. <laughs> but awesome. I'm excited. That, that was really good. Now, with this being your fourth book or fifth book, excuse me, how have you approached the marketing of this book different than you did the other four? Well, I'm really fortunate that um, Simon and Schuster shares my vision for my career and for my novels. And so they have a really good publicity and marketing team. And because I have a background in publishing, um, because I'm mature, you know, I've been around the block a couple of times, we have wonderful collaborations where they bring ideas, I bring ideas, they listen to me, I listen to them. And so the collaboration, um, is at a higher level than I've ever experienced before. And so I'm, I'm pretty grateful for the merging of the minds and that we're all on the same page of where we're going with this book. And so they have really been wonderful in pulling out all the stops to make sure that this book is as, in as many people's hands as possible. Awesome. Now in preparing for this conversation, I got a hunch that one of your children has begun to matriculate at an HBCU. Am I correct? Yes. <laughs> Are you encouraging your other children to attend HBCUs? And if so, why? So I would say that I have a freshman um, at North Carolina A&T, which um, he's having an amazing experience. And I, I love every moment of it. I did not have the privilege of going to an HBCU. Um, so it's, it's wonderful to live vicariously through him. And I have a freshman in, I'm not a freshman, I have a, a senior right now in high school. And so she's been accepted to Spelman and she's been accepted to North Carolina A&T so far. So she has a few more on her list, but those are the two that she's been accepted into. And I just have to say that when that Spelman acceptance came, I mean, the joy that the joy that she felt, the, the level of accomplishment. I mean, and she's had other acceptances, but I could just see in her body language that this was like the creme de la creme in her mind. Like it didn't matter, right? Like this was it. Now she has not committed, 
Um, but she, I could just tell, like she even still walks around the house and she's like, well, mommy, I don't know why you're saying no to me because I am a Spelman scholar, you know? So it, it's like, you know, it's, it's a high level of achievement for her. And so I am really, um, I try and help my kids make a decision that's best for them. And so while I'm not pushing a PWI or HBCU, what I do is say, take a look, right? What, what are you looking for? What, the, what type of experience do you want to have? And there's pros and cons to both. So based on each kid, you know, I'm sort of making sure they have, um, they have, they could look at both sides and then make a, make a decision. My son, there was no decision. He knew right away. He's like, this is what it is. I don't have to think about it. My daughter is the dramatic one. So she's like, everything is a guess, guess, you know, she's going to probably have a coming out moment, you know, where she has the big flag of the school and right. That that's the middle child. That's what she does. Right. That's, that's so awesome. Now, if someone wants to get in touch with you or come see you on your book tour, how can they get information about that? So it's very easy to find me um, on social media, Instagram and Twitter. I'm Sadiqua Says. If you want to, please go to my website um, so you can see my husband's beautiful handiwork. It is uh, SadiquaJohnson.net. And I think you could also get to me by putting in Sadiqua.net. That, that's a new thing that we're working on. So I have like that Oprah thing going, just Sadiqua, you know, so we're working on that right now. Um, I'm also on Facebook and uh, my tour schedule is going to be in the event section of my website. And I am on a forever tour. I leave February 7th and I think it doesn't end in right now until like the last week of April. So hopefully... I'm coming to a city near you and you can come and meet me and I'll sign your book and we'll take pictures. And I love it. Sadiqo, I'm impressed with um, how articulate you are. I'm impressed with how um, intentional you are. I'm impressed with how forthcoming you are. And um, I'm excited to read House of Even. And I've never been excited about fiction. So everybody make sure you get House of Eve. Sadiqa, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. And I wish you the best. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Have a great one. You too.